Welcome again to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda K. Lindenbaum, Zichron Olive Racha, is the research arm of our school, where faculty try to bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education and culture that are central to the modern Orthodox community. I'm Shmuel Hain, co-director of Machon Siach and the host of the Grand Conversation podcast. We feature the faculty and research fellows of Machon Siach discussing their work, and our producer is the immortal Rabbi Avi Bloom, Director of Technology at Sarah High School. For today's Grand Conversation, we are sitting down with the Principal of Sarah High School and the Dean of Machon Siach, Rabbi Tully Hartstark. Welcome, Rabbi Hartstark. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Hain. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to a great conversation. We'll be discussing today Tully's paper on Gemara education, an exploration of some of the challenges and opportunities presented when teaching rabbinic prohibitions relating to Shabbat in our high school. So Tully, before we dive deep into your paper, I wanted to talk about some of the context for your writing about this particular subject. My first question is, why did you start researching and writing about Gemara education more generally? Um, I spent I spent a lot of years uh, teaching Gemara over the course of time, and uh, I found that uh, learning changes in a significant way when you actually have to teach it and explain it to somebody else. And uh, the obligation, responsibility kind of grew on me. It felt really strong to try to make sure that when I was teaching Gemara to students, that it made sense to them, that they're able to say, oh, I get it, I understand it. Sometimes it happens in learning Gemara is... Uh, people might say, well, that's the way of the Gemara. And to me, that wasn't enough. Well, what actually is the way of the Gemara? What's the Gemara trying to do? What's it trying to say? Uh, and that takes hard work, spending time on a sugi to understand it. So I think one of the things that you and I have talked about, which perhaps you can elaborate on, is the idea that there's a general assumption that Gemara is not supposed to make sense, or that we're supposed to suspend our our... Ration, ra- rational thinking when it comes to certain parts of Gemara learning. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. I think that uh, often what that generates is a focus on Rishonim and some of the kind of classic logical arguments, and we put to the side some of that complexity that the Gemara is actually trying to figure out. And uh, what I think is really important in general, and especially for high school students who are learning Gemara, is to actually make the text of the Gemara make sense, meaning the Amoraim, for example, were struggling with real issues about how to interpret a text in a particular context and how to understand the question that, they, that, that a particular drasha, machloket, um, had to interpret a pasuk or some halachic issue. What's really behind that? That there's something deeper, an essential question that any sugya, any line, a couple of lines in a Gemara are actually trying to unpa- uh, deal with and focus on. Have you found that thinking about the way you teach this to high school students has impacted the way you learn Gemara yourself and the way you think about the Gemara? Uh, very much so. Um, I would say that um, the fa- as one of the uh, remarkable, what's, what's most exciting, what's really exciting in, in, as an educator is um, that dynamic, that process of trying to explain to others, realizing what questions that presents to you and the way that that informs, impacts the way that you approach a text and approach learning. Um, if I can, uh, I think that 
my personal biography, just personally, because my own experience. Um, I spent a fair chunk of time over the course of years learning Gemara and uh, learning it in a certain kind of classic mode. I think when I reflect back that I ended up spending less time trying to understand the Gemara and more time, as I said, trying to understand some of the uh, commentaries and their give and take. Um, and there was a very practical problem that came to the fore when I started to teach, which is you need to be able to make these lines actually make sense. And because I, I couldn't, I actually stopped focusing on Gemara to the same degree for, no, for a number of years uh, and actually came back to it because uh, some, of, uh, some of the more uh, ac- academic style of learning, um, which brought actually historical context uh, into play to understand what was going on in a particular sugya helped me make the Gemara more real, helped me understand, um, try to, uh, to kind of decipher what the agenda of a sugya, a particular sugya is, uh, what, uh, what a Gemara is actually trying to achieve, what the Gemara itself is actually trying to achieve. So let me push you on that particular, the personal biography and also the, the two different styles that you seem to be articulating. Are you arguing that there's a grand conversation or modern orthodox way to study Gemara that maybe more traditional uh, approaches to Gemara study don't fully embrace or don't fully are, 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 aren't, aren't attentive to? Um, I think that the grand conversation as an idea can really shape the way that we study Gemara because it suggests that there's constant dialogue taking place between text and people and the culture in which the people are living, and that that's actually what's happening in the sugya and gemara. Um, sometimes some of the most challenging sugyot, uh, one can make sense of them by taking that kind of approach. Um, I teach Kiddushin in the 10th grade, and what it means that uh, uh, you know, to obtain a woman is uh, perhaps the most, uh, is, is, a, is a very challenging kind of example. Um, and understanding what long-term financial commitment means in the context of marriage and why that would be, you know, putting it into its context actually can allow those sugyot to come to life. Um, when the Gemara talks about um, marrying off daughters when they're very young, why does the Torah allow that? Why does Rav prohibit that? Why do the Bali Tosfot then permit that again? There's something very dynamic that's happening there. Sometimes we avoid... That's sugya entirely, because Kiddush Ektana, marrying off young children, that's a pretty unsettling idea. And yet, seeing the way that commitment to halacha and actual circumstance interact in the Gemara is very powerful. And if you were learning in a more conventional uh, or even conceptual, brisker kind of approach, you would look at Kiddush Ektana and think about it conceptually. How is it similar to or different than standard Kiddushin, rather than actually exploring the question itself of how is it possible that this is something that's sanctioned by the Torah, falls by the wayside, comes back, and the like. Um, yeah, I actually think that the brisker lumdus can also be very useful and helpful, particularly in this kind of way. It's an issue of how you think about the time of it. it uh, sometimes the lumdus flattens out the time so that it's all kind of synchronic. This is You can see it this way or that way. Um, what uh, tr- sometimes trying to make sense of it in context allows you to see it that it's this way and that way, and that there is a kind of a dynamic. Marriage, for example, uh, should be seen as 
long-term financial commitment because that's a big part of what it means to be in a, a, a long-term uh, loving relationship. It should also be seen as um, intimacy uh, between, uh, between uh, the couple. And both of those come together. And what the sugya is doing is actually, without getting into the detail, championing both of those um, rather than picking one over the other. So before we, we dive into your paper, which will illuminate some of these different ideas that you've already expressed, one of the things I've been thinking about were just a few weeks after the Dafyomi celebration and the Siyama Shas, uh, is, is how does that impact the way you think about Gemara education more broadly. Uh, we've been talking about the, the idea of making sense of Gemara, but there's also something really aspirational and inspiring about the pace and the, the um, consistency and the, the push and the fact that in certain segments of the Orthodox community, Dafyomi has become, especially for lay people, a real vehicle for expressing their identity and their connection to Torah. How does, does that make you rethink the way in which we're thinking about Gemara education? Is that kind of a separate post-schooling kind of uh, thought? Uh, or does that have anything to do with this conversation at all? I, I actually, I, I think it has to do, and I actually don't see a contradiction, but I think they're very complementary. I think the idea of, uh, you know, the learning Bikiyot and learning Bi'yun has uh, been complementary modes of learning for forever, and I think that that's true here too. I do want to note that I, I feel like when we're talking about Gemara education, like at this stage, I'm like what I'd be arguing for is that teachers need to be learning in a certain kind of way together. This is kind of thinking about this as a step before what actually goes on in a classroom. Um, I think that part of the, uh, what, I, what I would like to argue is that, um, you know, you had asked me earlier about whether the, you know, kind of teaching affect my own learning. I feel like having a teacher's Beit Midrash is its own kind of enterprise, that when a person learns, for whatever reason, you can connect to Dafyomi, you can learn to connect to a Shir Bi'yun, but as a teacher, the idea of connecting to learning through what's going to make what we're learning clear and understandable and inspiring and morally strong and ethically powerful for kids, that's going to end up shaping the way that we're doing our own learning. So a step before, actually, what does it mean in a classroom is, can we get a bunch of teachers in a room to think about a particular sugya? And, I, and the argument would be that any sugya, kind of every line in a sugya needs unpacking in that kind of way. Well, how do we understand, how did we understand this when we were learning in the, ba, in the, in the base medrash? Well, when we think about teaching it to kids, what questions come up? And how do I have to consider, do I have to consider it differently in order for kids to be able to say, oh, I get that. I understand what's happening here. Great. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the particular paper. And we'll revisit some of these larger ideas. Kind of the, the, the answer you just gave expressed the idea of why a Gemara education group is an important element of what Machon Siach is trying to do. This, this space, this liminal space between theory and practice. It's not quite the ivory tower, but it's also not just pedagogy and kind of bridging those two is what you've been talking about. What, what specifically struck you about the sugya of Gzeirot Durabanan and Shvut on Shabbat 
and made you want to focus on that and devote time to that and write a paper on that? Yeah, we were learning Hilchah Shabbos. In the pra- you know, educational challenges are practical challenges. Basically, you're in a classroom um, and you have content that you're supposed to teach and that generates a, how do I think about this? So we were learning Hilchah Shabbos in the, in the grade and it was time to learn about Dinim Drabana, Nisuri Shvus. And that is kind of the quintessential example of where and I'll say, I'm generalizing, we'll talk about modern Orthodox kids will say, oh, so I can't go swimming because I'm going to pull a branch off, I'm going to build a raft, I can't ride, you know, because I'm going to pull a branch off of a, of a tree. I, I, I'm pretty sure I can do it without, like, going to get into that trouble. Um, and so it is uh, an, an interesting question to, well, sh- that, that is what the Gemara says, so that's that's it. So... Do I just explain it that way and, and leave kids scratching their heads, or is there something else to do? And that, in a way that's different than I want to delve into the sugya of Yisurish, it was a practical question. Said, well, I want to like delve into this. So I got to delve into the sugya more and say, like, well, how has this been uh, uh, dealt with, and how have we shown and thought about this question? So it's a practical pedagogic question that generates a looking into the sugya um, thoughtfully. So tell me a little bit about the, the different views of the sugya and kind of how you approached it and what were some of the resources you brought into understanding this particular issue. Well, I decided to take a step back and look at the sugya more broadly and look at some of the research that's been done on the sugya, both in terms of the Torah shiurim that have been written and also some of the academic uh, uh, artic- articles that were written. And it became pretty clear that there are two distinct uh, approaches, one that appears in the Bavli and another that appears um, in Midrashei Halacha, which the Ramban actually quotes and brings back, even though it doesn't appear in the, in the Gemara. Um, the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli's approach says, all of this is a gzeir shema. You're like, you're not supposed to do these things because they might lead to other things. The, the Midrashei Halacha actually put this into a different category of a mitzvah say, where the Torah says tishbot is an obligation to rest on Shabbos. And of course, we know that there are 39 lachot that are prohibited on Shabbos, but we also know that there's a lot of room to do all kinds of things without violating the letter of the law. And according to the Medjusha Elacha, the idea of tishbot was to generate an open-ended positive commandment that said, create an environment which would be Shabbos-like. And that actually makes a lot of sense. It's very resonant. The idea of not doing, not moving furniture around your house, not sitting by a pool and going swimming, not going out to the beach. Part of that is about creating an environment which is Shabbos-like and feels different. Actually, on the one hand, that's uh, an explanation that kids can understand very readily. Makes uh, when you bring that to a classroom, they say, "Yeah, I get that." Uh, but it's not what the Tama Bavli says. Tama Bavli gives a different explanation. Actually, also makes a very significant difference because. In the major Shayal Achaz explanation, it's a Doraita, and in the Talmud Bavli, it's an Isidra Banan. So it's actually an interesting, again, pedagogical question once you unpack those sides. Do you want to make it deeply understandable, or do you want to teach the way that appears in the Bavli? When you make it, um, which is harder to explain, maybe you can figure out how to explain that too, um, which we should get back to because there's an approach to that. Um, but it also makes it more severe. Um, it also is saying, well, let me choose a different explanation in order to present it to students so that's understandable, rather than just doing, well, here's what the Gemara says and what's most common, as uh, we explain it in the Shulchan Aruch. So just re- hearing you articulate those different approaches, it also occurs to me that the approach of the Yushalmi opens up a whole 
new vista in terms of technology and Shabbos yep. and, and kind of we can avoid the 39 Malachot, but maybe this is another way of reformulating Shabbos on a Doraita level, which doesn't just focus on the Malacha and even in an automated world may be able to preserve that spirit of Shabbat even without a Malacha being tripped up. So I, I would think that this is this has... Uh, all kinds of ramifications and applications outside of the specific context when you talk about Shabbos more generally. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it brings to mind uh, the story of the that when the Chazonishin of Shlomo Zalm and Orbach were debating, kind of writing, you know, talk, talking to each other, writing on uh, electricity and its status on Shabbos. So the story is quoted that when it was presented to the Chazonish, his response was, I know that it's usher, I just have to figure out why. Um, and he famously uh, decided there was an Isra Doraisa of Bona. Um, Rosh Hashanah had a different view, but it is interesting to think about technology in the context of uh, Mitzvah Rasei of Tishbot, that that's what it means to create a Shabbos environment. I'm not proposing that. I'm just saying that that, as you say, it does actually bring uh, that kind of in- intuition about how to think about it uh, to mind. So getting back to kind of the methodology and the specific application here, are there any are there any concerns that you have in in kind of teaching these different approaches and maybe demystifying some of the uh, questions of rabbinic authority and and the like uh, more specifically is is there any downside to introducing an alternative approach which is perhaps not as commonly accepted or used. In this case, there's a Ramban, which kind of brings it back, but I'm, I'm thinking more methodologically in other contexts. Could you see this approach sometimes having a downside? Yeah, actually in the, in, in the paper, the third approach that, uh, I, we haven't so much talked about how to explain the Shema, the, Shema, um, the, Bavli. the Bavli, but but after kind of presenting those two, I say like it's possible to just say part of what the pedagogical trade-off you have to think about is in trying to make things make sense. There's a concern that uh, we're not communicating the strong value of saying this is what Chazal said, and you just got to keep it because you got to keep it. There's a sense of obligation and commitment. Um, I don't think that the way to think about it is to decide which one is right between the three of these. Um, I do think that it's important for an educator, for educators to sit down together to A, learn in that kind of way, and then actually engage exactly the question that you raised. That's a really important question. What? It's not just about the content. Uh, it's also about uh, what's being communicated um, in, uh, in, in subtle kinds of ways uh, and actually being conscious of what we're communicating in subtle ways or being explicit about uh, what the different sides of it, uh, of the issue, different values you're actually trying to communicate. So this is a great example. On the one hand, you want it to make sense. On the other hand, you want to say whether it makes sense or not. That's what Chazal said. You got you to keep it. And then what happens in a given classroom on a given issue, that's what I think is so exciting about educational deliberation. It's like making those decisions. They're content decisions. You need a lot of, you know, you need to know Torah in order to think about what the possibilities are and then consider what makes the most sense for these particular kids. I'm sitting here not just as someone who has participated in these Gemara education uh, workshops and sharing papers and feedback and the like, but also as a parent of a ninth grader and thinking also about the developmental question and, and when do you emphasize the Chazal say this and that's the way we got to go and when do you emphasize the other things and the subtleties 
that kids pick up on at which stage of their development. I think all those are part of the conversation that you want to have about how we teach these things. Yeah, right. And I, I, want, I think it's important to say, because like, the goal is not to say, anytime you find something that you, know, you think is a hard way, it's hard to explain it this way, then find something else and find a different way to explain it. That's not the idea. The argument is much more that as an enterprise, this is something that educators should be focusing on to really learn with kind of kids in mind and consider the different trade-offs and be, be aware of what the possibilities are in order to be able to make educational decisions that have to do with who are the students, what community you're teaching and how old are they, um, and you know, how, many of these, how many approaches do you want to uh, propose in a given sugya. I want to ask you about something that I think about that I'm not sure if we've ever talked about, which is related to this whole discussion. And one of the things you just said that struck me is you have to know Torah. You have to know the sugya. You have to know how to really analyze and read and be thorough in terms of understanding the different approaches and being able to explain those different approaches. I'm thinking now about our backgrounds and the way the school environment in which we teach. And both of us studied in a kind of context that didn't have this thinking going on and came to that and evolved uh, to that place. And I'm wondering if there is something lost in not evolving there and starting there, or if that's just not something we can control. We have to teach the best way that we think we can teach. We can't necessarily teach towards our children and students learning in the exact same trajectory that we had. So I'm not sure if there's a question there. Maybe there's a reaction to the trajectory we had and the trajectory some of the faculty here has had, as opposed to the way in which we're engaging with our students. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I think that that's a very, it's a good point. I don't think uh, we have to do exactly the same thing, uh, but I do think that when we react to our own experiences, we can become too limited. I think that, you know, the idea of having more Gemara learning available for students, more Bikius, more of that, is actually making sure that we don't forget that exposure and learning, being able to just sit and learn, because that's, it's a mitzvah to do that, and to know more Torah, that's important. That's, that's part of, that's what we're trying to do. And there's no contradiction. You gotta try to, um, but, you can't, but you can't forget. They're trying to hold on to both those. Do you ever find you give a weekly, twice a week, Chabura in Bikiyut? Do you ever find that you want to get into something or discuss something, but because of the limitations of time or whatever it is, you kind of just go into Bikiyut mode there and, and mention, hey, there's something here, guys, that we could get into more, but we're going to plow through? Yeah, I feel very good about that. That's, that's great. Each has, its, uh, each has its place. I think that if you spend... Uh, uh, you know, if you're only doing one thing, you're not, uh, you know, covering enough. I think the kids need to be able to do that as as well. So um, it's just accepting that that's, you, you, you're trying to do, we're trying to do a lot. One other part of the paper that I wanted to spend some time on because I found it interesting and illuminating of the project as a whole is your discussion about different commonplaces and the work of Schwab on that. Do you want to take a couple of seconds to kind of uh, share with us the impact that his work had on you and the way you think about Gamara. Uh, yeah, Joseph Schwab was a professor at the University of Chicago for decades in uh, the mid, mid-century, uh, 20th century. Uh, and he was uh, very thoughtful about curriculum. He wrote a series of articles called The Practical, one, two, three, and four. 
four different essays, and he was trying to create a structure for um, thinking about uh, content in this way. And he said that when the job of, uh, when we're thinking about what we're teaching our kids, there are four elements we have to pay attention to. Um, there, the teacher is, is one and the student is another. If we kind of just stop there for a second, you can think about different communities within our, um, you know, Shomer Mitzvos community alone. You can think about different kinds of teachers in different kinds of schools. You can think about different kinds of students within the same school and certainly between communities within our broader community. And that you need to think about who's the teacher and who's the student. And he said there are two other factors, which is the curriculum, the content, meaning uh, if somebody goes for a higher degree in whatever area, they might uh, have a PhD in physics, but when they come to teach 11th grade physics, they have to decide, well, what parts am I teaching? What parts am I leaving out? And how am I going to do that? That's the curriculum. And then there's what he calls the milieu, which is the context. So, uh, and the, the context of the, the communal context, which means uh, there are, you know, there yeshivot in, uh, we're in Riverdale, and there are places in Queens and in Brooklyn, and uh, there are yeshivot 100 years ago, and God willing, it'll be another 100 years. Um, and all of those are in different contexts with different cultural assumptions. He said, when you're, when you're an edu the educational enterprise, like to really think about what's good um, in this particular moment in your classroom right now, you got to think about in, in planning for it, who's, who's the teacher, who's the student, what is the curriculum, and what's the milieu. And the way that all of those interact with each other are going to generate decisions about what you want to teach and why and what you're trying to convey. And that's not uh, uniform and flat. That's very dynamic and changes all the time. I think that that, he was writing about that in the context of uh, science and other, you know, every discipline really. Um, but when we think about that in the context of Torah learning, um, it's just, wow, it's like a ton to do. One other phrase that really resonates in the paper that I think is really important for understanding Gemara teaching and education is pedagogical content knowledge. What does that mean and why is it so important? Yes, that's a really important concept. It was coined by Professor Lee Shulman, who was... Um, Friend was, of Mahon Sia. Yes, he's a wonderful person. He's a professor at uh, Stanford University uh, at uh, Carnegie Foundation. He uh, led that for many years. He uh, described the craft of a, of a teacher uh, and that one of the really important tasks of a teacher is to take the wealth of knowledge uh, that they've gained through all their learning and graduate work or wherever it is that they've learned, and to translate that for use in a classroom, uh, that there is content knowledge, and that can be the science or the math or the Tanakh, whatever it is that you're teaching, and there's pedagogical content knowledge, that that is thinking about uh, how do I make this clear and understandable for students, and that that is really um, kind of at the core of the craft of teaching, is being able to do that kind of work. Um, I think in a certain sense that kind of sums it up. What we're trying to do um, for Gamar is to think about it in terms of pedagogic content knowledge. Out of all we learned, what do we want to convey? How do we want to present it so that it's like, oh, I get it. So let's go back to kind of the thorny problem that your paper begins with, which is this Gzeira Shema, the idea that maybe you'll go ahead and build a raft with a stick or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So how do we explain that? What, how do we bring our knowledge and, and our understanding of the students and the milieu and all that together to offer some kind of explanation? 
Well, even looking into the idea of slippery slopes, it's, uh, it was interesting that when I started paying attention, it's like there's a whole literature on slippery slope arguments and what, they, what they're about. And just to say briefly, I think that one of the misconceptions about it is that the slippery slope argument here is if I go into the lake, I am going to build a raft. And there's a part of that that's true, but slippery slope arguments also have to, are cultural arguments. They have to do with the way that societies move in a much more unconscious kind of way. And that we kind of know is true. It's, uh, there's certain things that are just not acceptable, and then if one person does something and the next person does it over the course of time, we kind of forget, and we move into a different, uh, different space. Uh, when rabbis give talks about you know, how you dress on Shabbos, can imagine that there's like, well, you're supposed to dress like this on Shabbos, and then it starts to slow chip away, and over the course of time, you end up in a place that's like very different than where you were five years ago. And there's, an, I think, a pretty easy way to think about Gzeira Shema is like these kinds of, we're afraid that something is going to lead to something else, that the Shabbos environment, that what's going to happen is we're going to end up uh, spending Shabbos or Yontif uh, by the pool. That's what it's going to be like. And, uh, and, and then in that context, we're going to forget that there are certain things that are prohibited. And if you think about it on a communal cultural level, it's much easier to imagine how those kinds of things happen. Okay, one last question. This has been a really exciting and interesting discussion and conversation. I'm curious what you see as kind of the next steps for your Gemara education work. How is this, how are you going to take some of these ideas of making sense that you're doing in individual sugyot and and try to take it forward from there? I would love for us to be able to create, at least here to start, a Beit Midrash of our faculty who are sitting and learning. We pick something that we're going to learn together. Maybe it's what we're teaching, but actually maybe it's not, so that we're all kind of starting fresh and, 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 and practice doing that. Like, what happens when you learn this sugi? What lines actually were we willing to gloss over that we're just not going to do anymore? To create a pedagogical, content, knowledge-focused Teacher's Beit Midrash. That's actually going to focus on making the Gemara and Sugyot like this make sense in this kind of way. Sign me up. I'm in. Thank you, Rabbi Hardstark, for an illuminating conversation. We look forward to welcoming you back to the grand conversation in the future. Great. Thank you. Great to be here.